Greg, how are you? I'm okay, Justin. How are you doing? Um, busy, which I think is uh, it's probably par for the course as we are starting the semester up. But each semester, it feels like you know we could ease into it. And uh, I don't know. I don't think I really thought that was a choice this semester, but it does feel like we hit the ground running. It's a strange semester. Uh, I can report from the Allen Building that uh, there's just a, a fraction of the activity we usually see when school opens. Students and faculty are, you know, respecting the university guidelines that they're not supposed to hang around. Uh, but it makes it a much quieter and less interesting place. But perhaps safer. Yeah. Well, probably definitely, definitely safer. Um, but I was saying to someone. Uh, that it, I think this is the first time where my classes are online this semester, as you know, where I'm not showing up on campus throughout August and September, I think, and since, since I was five years old. I, I never took any breaks from school. Um, this is like the first sep upcoming September where I'm not going to be on a campus regularly, and it's really weird. Well, I tell people that uh, I was so good at school, I never left. <laughs> yeah, and, that's a story uh, I go with too. <laughs> but I'm I'm uh, I, I've been going into the office uh, for the beginning of classes just to try to make sure that we got stuff right on this on these face to face classes and we get in rooms that people can fit in and all and so you know there's some amount of of you know musical chairs moving people around depending upon what their, what their uh, enrollments ended up being, trying to get them in the room so that they can socially distance in. So, so yeah, I've been in, I've been in for the first time in five months. I've been in, you know, uh, starting last Wednesday, starting last Monday, basically, I've been in the school every day. Well, I've heard mixed reports from colleagues that have had in-person courses. Some have thought it's gone much better, that the text worked really well and the transition was really easy and they're wasn't very many students for the size of the room at all. And then other reports were that there were uh, some real challenges, couldn't get the tech to work. Um, so it seems to be a little bit of a mixed bag, which um, given what we're, we're trying to accomplish, makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, there's no pattern to it. I mean, Zoom went down uh, one day last week, I think for, for about an hour that complicated things. And, uh, you know, the tech can be bulky. Some, some of the classes, absolutely flawless, other ones in and out. So um, we'll keep trying. Well, we have a number of things to get through tonight. Um, should let the audience know that they're stuck with us one more night, um, but we do have guests coming in finally to get some real uh, actual expertise. Uh, well, our I mean, friend oh, and hold on, hold on. <laughs> actual expertise besides yours and mine yeah, yeah new expertise we're not new we're, expertise. we're not we're not potted plants here you know <laughs> uh well we'll leave that to the viewers to decide <laughs> uh, we have raymond robertson who's going to join us in two weeks and that will be on september 8th and uh given that raymond is our regular economist we'll get to talk about um things related to economics. I'm hoping to talk with him about uh, conditions for labor, both in the US, but internationally as we're responding to the pandemic and uh, also talk some tech stuff with him too, uh, to see how that might be, how the way the economy is changing um, might also uh, speed up some of those use of tools or change how we do some things in the economy to get his take on. 
And then two weeks after that, we'll have Christine Blackburn uh, with us again, who is one of our public health experts at the Bush School, helped us guide through the early days of the pandemic, as you and I were, uh, you know, mostly clueless learning about uh, pandemics. And um, so she'll be back to kind of give us an update and catch us up. So looking forward to that. And then we'll be gathering some more guests throughout the throughout the semester. So people will get breaks from just us talking about the current news. But but today we're gonna to be dishing out some hot takes. But today we're gonna to be dishing out some hot takes. That's right, Greg. So we have a few topics just to give everyone an idea of what's coming. Um, we're gonna to touch on four topics. We're gonna to touch on the conventions. United States Postal Service will be what we follow with that, which got some shout outs from the conventions already. Um, TikTok, China and the US. And Greg and I are going to dive into a little bit of this because it overlaps with both of our expertise to think about how some of the world's going, some of the things going on in cybersecurity and in the digital world, um, we can look at lessons from history about conflict and technological development to help us understand the broader lens of what's going on, not only with TikTok, but the US and China's rivalry here. And then Back to school. Uh, we talked about this last uh, two weeks ago as we were getting ready to start classes back. Um, Greg has been on campus. I have been hiding from campus. And uh, so we'll get a little bit of an update from Greg on what campus is like and also some of the things that played out across some of the universities as they have begun opening, Texas A&M and elsewhere. It's a full agenda, Greg. You ready for this? All set. All right. Well, first, let's talk about conventions. Uh, for those of uh, you that are into politics, the conventions like the presidential election is, is kind of the Super Bowl or the lead up to the World Series, if you would. This was, that um, used to be kind of a lot of pomp and circumstance and some fun around them. And that's different this year for a lot of reasons, isn't it? Well, they're not real conventions. You're not getting the party, the party faithful crammed into a, an, a, you know, a big arena. And uh, you know, waving signs and 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 having roll call votes from the floor, which you don't really have that many of anymore. So yeah, they're very different. I mean, conventions have been infomercials for for quite some time. I mean, the last like debates. Kind of, I'm trying to remember. You know, 2016, the Democratic convention had a little drama just because mm. of the Bernie versus Hillary hard feelings. I mean, there was no drama about who was the nominee was going to be, but there was plenty of drama about what the floor would look like and how things would work out. And they weren't great. Uh, one could argue that if you had a, a, a live Democratic convention this year with all the Republicans that got asked to speak, the floor might have been a little uh, <laughs> might have been a little wonky. You know, John Kasich might not have gotten a great, uh, great reception, at the yeah. even though he was talking anti-Trump. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're even more of an infomercial now and, uh, you know, the, the old days are, the old days are gone, Justin. Have you ever been to a, a, a national political convention? I have not. I have. How were they? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I was, when I was in my ute, I, I, uh, worked for President Ford's campaign in the 19, at the 1976 Republican National Convention. Kansas City, Missouri. That was a close, right? That was the Reagan-Ford primary mm -hmm. fight. Yep. And, and Ford came in with barely a majority of delegates and the Reagan camp was trying to peel people away. I was, uh, 
I was one of the crowd scene that was bussed around so that every time President Ford got out, you know, got out of the limo to go into a hotel to talk to a delegation, there was a, a cheering crowd around. That, yeah, that was you. That was me. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> on, on, the, on the final night, they let us onto the convention floor for President Ford's acceptance speech. That was fun. There's a lot of energy. Uh, it was it was neat, but uh, you know I I, I, I yeah I, I don't I don't think that and and of course the irony is that uh, the the acceptance speech for the Democratic National Convention was made in my hometown, yeah, in Wilmington, That's Delaware. Great. So great. I, I it, if you had had a live convention, it wouldn't have been in Wilmington, Delaware. It's be <laughs> Delaware. But uh, I I enjoy I enjoyed just having a having a presidential candidate give a, give a acceptance speech from my hometown, my hometown. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's definitely different. And, um, it'll be interesting as we eventually overcome COVID to see what the next, what kind of blend we use in the future. But, um, the way in which all this is kind of intermediary in, intermediated by, you know, social media and, um, kind of remote access in, some of that kind of excitement or some of that unknown going into the conventions and that sort of uh, building towards those events. I mean, it may be a long time, if ever, if it plays out like that in the future. I mean, it's a whole different thing right. now. I mean, I can't imagine a, a, a virtual convention where a Ted Cruz could have gotten up and give the speech that he gave at the Republican National Convention in 2016 yeah. because, you know, the, the people who control the party just wouldn't show it. Yeah, uh, but I mean, there. I, I kind of buy the conventional wisdom that the that the Democratic roll call, you know, done in all the fifty states with the lovely backgrounds and the Rhode Island guy holding the calamari and all. I thought that was neat. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, the 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 roll call is a liturgy of of American politics, and so I actually tuned in, not knowing that it was going to be virtual, uh, and I don't got a kick out of it. I got a kick out of it. Uh, I didn't watch a Republican one because they said it wasn't going to be virtual. It was just going to be in the in in the convention hall in Charlotte. So I said, eh, I've seen enough of them. Well, I think we should. It would be fun to talk a little bit about the two conventions as they're playing out. The DNC last week, the RNC is playing out right now. Today, as we're recording, would be night two. So we've only seen one night. And uh, I would say at the beginning, I didn't watch either one of them live. Um, turns out there's a few things going on holding my attention. Um, but I have gone back, as I said to you, Greg, and watched uh, Joe Biden's acceptance speech, uh, Barack Obama's speech, and I watched uh, parts of Donald Trump Jr.'s speech, part of, parts of Nikki Haley's speech, parts of Tim Scott's speech. Uh, some of the production of that was it was on uh, uh, uploaded on YouTube, so I kind of watched some of the production in between stuff, and then watched um, Trump's kind of surprise speech as well. Um, so that's that's where I'll be coming surprise. from. <laughs> surprise, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, well, one I think um, we'll do it maybe in chronological order. So the DNC. Um, the NC seems to have tried to do the big tent approach, right? Tried to gather in all the voices and pre uh, present a huge united front. 
tried to bring in former political, you know, rivals and give them airtime, um, tried to make a point of being uh, uh, inclusive and have lots of different types of folks, um, which actually showed up a decent amount in the RNC as well in terms of different types of people on the stage. Um, and you know, I said this about Joe Biden's DNC speech in 2016. I think he did a pretty good job. And I think that it was it had some moments that were um, inspiring, some moments that were what, what you would hope the country would hear from a presidential candidate right now. Like we're in this together and we have a lot of work to do and we've had some challenges. Now he, of course, lays a lot of that at Trump, but just the coronavirus and the pandemic and the consequences of that and you know this, the kind of the the spill is let's work together to rebuild and make America as as good as it can be. <clears throat> yeah. It's like a focus on togetherness and um, and so there was that. And then, well, what was your take of, of Biden's uh, speech? So you know, I thought it was a pretty good speech, but it but it also it it brought out the theory of the case that the Biden campaign has, which is this is not a, an election about about uh, programs. This is not a, an election about proposals. It's an election about uh, the, the Biden people are going to try to make this an election about how bad Donald Trump has done with the coronavirus response. And, you know, then they'll tack on some other things about how bad he's done on other stuff, but basically how badly he's done on the coronavirus and how horrible a human being he is. Whereas Joe Biden is, a, is an empathetic, understanding, feel your pain kind of guy who will who will care about the about the sufferings of the American people in this time of coronavirus and economic uh, economic recession depression and and will uh, you know vote for Joe because he's a good guy now that's that's a theory of the case that's I think directly aimed at those suburban especially female suburban voters that shifted from Republican to Democrat in 2018 and, and gave the Democrats, you know, their, their victory in the, in the House of Representatives and, and, and flipped the House to, to Democratic majority. Uh, the other thing that I took out of the convention, aside from Biden, I mean, I, Biden did a good job. He's, he's not a great speech maker. I, I, I've seen more Joe Biden speeches than most people having grown up in Delaware. Uh, I actually have seen him live a number of times. Uh, he's not a great speaker. He tends to ramble on. Uh, he was very disciplined. He was very focused. I actually think that, that not having a crowd helped him. You know, he could talk right to the camera and not have to talk to the crowd. I thought that that was a, a I thought that that actually helped him. That's, that's our landline. We're, we're old. So we have a landline. We never pick it up. We never pick it up. What's a landline, Greg? Can you describe, yeah, can you describe it, that to me? <laughs> yeah, it, except when my father, who's 90 years old, calls, he always calls on the landline. So we have yeah. to. Uh, so, you know, I thought Biden gave a pretty good speech, right? Uh, oh, it's John Cornyn on my phone. Ah, look at that timing. Wow. That's political we, well, advertising. Later, <laughs> later on in the election season, we'll talk about this, the Senate race in, in Texas. No doubt, no question about it. Yep. But the other thing about the convention, and I, I, I'll, I'll stop filibustering in a minute. The other thing about the convention is that uh, 
you know, if the theory of the case from the Biden campaign is we're laser focused on 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 those suburban voters, especially suburban women, and that's how we're going to flip Michigan and Pennsylvania and and Wisconsin and 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 maybe North Carolina, maybe Arizona, maybe Florida. Right. That's how we're going to flip them. The other message of the convention, I thought, was the multicultural element of the Democratic mm. Party. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley were, were uh, night one featured speakers in the Republican National Convention. But my guess is that you'll have a hard time finding too many black and brown faces as the RNC goes on, just because of what the Republican Party is now. So are those two messages from the DNC? Look how multicultural we are versus we want those suburban voters who tend to be white, right? Tend to be upper middle class. Uh, is there gonna be a tension in that? And that's something that I think the Republicans, you could just tell on night one are trying to drive home that, that, that tension in the Republican party. And, and they have to do it, you know, through dog whistles, right? They can't come right out and say, hey, you can't vote for these people, you know, the, the, all sorts of black and brown people will be coming into your neighborhood. Although some people came close to saying that on night one of the RNC. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that there is that tension in, on the Democratic side between a, a campaign that's very focused at a certain demographic and a party that represents a much broader demographic. Yeah. And we'll see, it, we'll see it come out on things like, okay, this is literally the last thing I'm gonna say and I'll let you <laughs> Right? To me, the biggest bit of news last night was not what happened at the RNC. It was, it was the, the rioting in Kenosha, Wisconsin which turned violent, right, uh, rioting. Demonstrations that turned into violent protests and riots. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that you get more of that around the United States and pictures of that, this plays exactly into the message that President Trump wants to, wants, wants to use to kind of drive that wedge between that, that demographic that Biden is, is looking for, so. Yeah, that seems right. I mean, I, I from here, Iowa would have as big of a tent and an alternative kind of broad vision of what we want America to be. And we'll sort through the details later was sort of the takeaway where, uh, and that will, that will not appeal to some progressives for sure, but it's not like they have a lot of other options. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think it's the right, I think it's the right play. I don't, I don't know how well it ends up playing when your opponent's taking um, the tact that that he's taking. It looks like you're taking the high road. It looks like you're taking the, you know, let's pull together. Um, but then, you know, it does it does leave open to criticism as well. Trying to be include everyone in the tent and include all the ideas. I and mean, this was what was kind of played out on the. Um, on the in between kind of speeches on the RNC clips that I was watching, you know, essentially one of the talking lines is that um, that radical left congresspersons and senators have already kind of infiltrated and took it, taken over Joe Biden, and that um, he's already just kind of a you know a puppet for the the radical left. Which, if you open your tent to everyone. Um, that's an accusation that then seems to come with it when you're not distancing yourself from the more radical, you know, from the more further left part of your party. 
Yeah, uh, but I mean, Biden did, I think, successfully fight back against the notion that he's senile, right? The yeah, sleepy, I agree. Yeah, the sleepy, the sleepy Joe. He, he didn't look sleepy in that speech. No, nope, I agree. So then we have RNC this week, um, and we both caught some of that. Um, it was uh, it was wild. It started out with the Turning Point USA uh, kid. I mean, he's younger than me. He's 26. That looked like, I mean, it was a kind of a firebrand, pro-white nationalism, just like yelling kind of thing with the whole like, you know, had his hand into it and everything. And then there was a little bit more kind of scattered throughout of togetherness and unity as part of some of the advertising and some of the transition screens. And uh, then you, you know, you have a few other speeches, that, but the, you know, the next one that stuck with me was Trump Jr. I mean, just playing the role of the corrupt son so well. I mean, I don't know how else to describe his just like litany of lies and yelling and self-contradictions kind of littered throughout his, throughout his speech, uh, all while trying to mimic his dad as part of his mannerisms. He's like going in on trying to mimic some of Trump's mannerisms, um, which was kind of interesting to Trump's speech himself, which was just a kind of a typical campaign rally style speech that he starts with saying, you know, you're gonna upset them by saying 12 more years gets the crowd to chant 12 more years and then tries to insinuate that his first four were stolen. So he should get actually at 12 total in like a wink, wink, nod, nod kind of way without actually coming out and saying it as how he starts his like address of the RNC convention. That's what he wants the focus to be on. Um, and so anyways, those are, I have some more about uh, Trump's speech and a couple of quotes that we might look at some referencing Texas, some referencing the postal service, which is our next topic. Um, but what, I mean, how does this fit with, you participated in RNC, uh, conventions at some point in your life, you were a Republican for most of your adult life. Um, what is, what is going on? What does this look like to you? 44 years ago, I participated in a Republican national convention. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, gives you, gives you a sense of how old I am. Uh, <laughs> more years ago than I have been alive, sir. Yes, indeed. Um, By a decade. No, this is not. The, this is this is not the 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 Republican Party. It's the party of Trump. There's no question about it. I mean, the fact that every one of his family members who hasn't written a, a scathing book about him is is going to be speaking uh, is uh, an indication. I mean, the fact that you take Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, who are two of your, in many ways, most attractive and and marketable faces for the party and you put them on on an equal footing with Donald Trump Jr., who's never been elected to anything, never had a real job in his life, uh, never had a job that he didn't get it from his father. I mean, that's, I mean, the, the fact that the president thinks Donald Trump Jr. is on the same level as Tim Scott, uh, an elected United States Senator, well, I guess he was appointed, but then he won his election, United States Senator and Nikki Haley, an elected governor who then served as a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, it just shows you that that it's his party, and 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 you know, like the old song says, to paraphrase, you know, it's my party, and I'll rant if I want to, <laughs> and, and that and 
kind of that's what he did in the morning. I mean, if the message, if at least one of the messages is the president is disciplined, he's focused, he's concentrated on, on solving the problems created by the coronavirus. I don't see how a 50 minute rant about, you know, mail-in balloting and 12 more years and the Democrats are trying to steal this election, it keeps you on message. But the president does what he wants to do. And that's, and for many people, that's his appeal. Let's face it. Yeah. Well, I want to pull up uh, at least one fun quote because Texas got a shout out. And uh, I don't know if you called this, but I was just going to share how the president views Texas politics. And, oh, I want to hear uh, that. I missed this. <laughs> so here we go. He says, we've done things that nobody thought were possible. Like example, the Keystone Pipeline. We got that approved. The Dakota Access Pipeline. They were all bogged down, right? Right? We've got things that they said you couldn't get done. We're energy independence. And they said we want to ban fracking. No fracking. How do you think they'll do in Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota? Louisiana is going to love it. There's no fracking. There's basically, they want no fossil fuel whatsoever, okay? No gas, no oil, no coal, no nothing, okay? So they don't want anything. Now they're getting killed because a poll just came out in Texas. Texas wasn't happy. They want no guns. They want no oil and gas, and they want no God. No God. It's no religion, no guns, no oil and gas. I don't think you're going to do too good in Texas. George Washington could come back from the dead, and he would choose as his VP candidate the late, great Abraham Lincoln, and you're not going to win the state of Texas if you have no oil, no guns, and no religion. I don't think so. Well, George Washington, you know, Texas wasn't a state when George Washington was alive. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the president is right. I mean, I don't, I don't think that the, Biden is going to be particularly competitive in Texas. The dream of a purple Texas will once again recede you know it's 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 like it's like the sports team that's three years away from being three years away right texas is three years away from being three years away from being a competitor <laughs> and yeah. and i just i the, the national democratic party and the texas electorate aren't a good match right now now if, if you can increase uh Hispanic turnout and, and, and those non-voting Hispanic Texans vote generally the way that Hispanic Texans vote overall, then yeah, then, then Texas becomes purple and Texas becomes uh, competitive and, and maybe you can run uh, uh, a climate change, uh, gun control kind of campaign and be competitive in Texas, but I, I don't see that in 2000. But, you know, if Texas is competitive come the end of October, this election's over anyway. What I want to know about this is where, who's, where's the no God party? This is the part that I'm having a hard time understanding as, uh, as maybe not a regular practice, practice, practitioner of religion. I don't see any no God parties. Do you see any no, no God parties, Greg? I, I, I think that there's an underlying element of, 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 uh, 2% fact, right? In that on the, uh, it would be a democratic governor who would be more likely to say in the midst of coronavirus, church services have to be suspended. In-person church services have to be suspended. Uh, 
I don't think Republican governors, I think, would be less likely to do that, particularly here in the South and Southeast. Right. Uh, I, I, I do think that, that demographically, the base of the Republican Party is increasingly Christian, right? It's increasingly evangelical Christian uh, with, a, with a, a considerable smattering of conservative Catholics in there. Uh, and I think that that's, that's planned to the base. Now, is Joe Biden irreligious? Joe Biden has been in churches so much more often in his life than <laughs> Donald Trump has been. I've actually been in church with Joe Biden more than once. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Delaware Catholics. Uh, he, he has a house down in Rehoboth Beach where my parents live. And I've been in church on Sunday and I've turned around and looked in the back and there's the vice president. You know, so I, I can tell you that Joe, Joe Biden, I don't know if he believes in God, but he believes in church. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, it's it's the kind of rhetoric that um, we'll see if people buy it. I doubt they will. I doubt. You know, it kind of makes me think of is Islamist language. Like one of the things that was featured so much in in his speech. One of the very first things he says in this kind of um, early and at the, at the morning of the convention was from the, the very first thing he sort of goes off after talking about how the, uh, O'Biden and, uh, O'Biden, <laughs> Biden and Obama uh, had been spying on, on, um, his campaign. That he, he says that we're not going to take God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. That's like his first like policy thing that he jumps into is that we're not going to take God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, which is just an interesting place to, to, to start giving everything that's going on in the world. Well, uh, you know, there's an old saying among lawyers, if you don't have the facts, hammer the law. If you don't have the law, hammer the facts. And if you don't have the facts of the law, hammer the table. And I think that, I think that this is some table pounding. You know, pay no attention to those coronavirus statistics. Pay no attention to the unemployment statistics. Well, the president pays attention to him. He says, look at all the job growth we've had without talking about the job collapse that we had in March and April. So yeah, I mean, look, this is politics. You sell what you can. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to talk about this as we go along, as we get polling data coming out of the conventions, see if there's any convention bounce for anybody, or if the strangeness and difference of the convention means that the old days of convention bounce are gone. So let's keep on trucking because we got a couple more topics. The next one comes from uh, uh, ongoing controversy with the United States Postal Service, which the president was highlighting at the very beginning uh, after the 12 more years chant. Um, he mentions 80 million mail-in ballots. Uh, he says that they're working on sending them out to people that didn't even ask for them. They didn't ask. They just got them. And it's not fair and it's not right. And it's not going to be possible to tabulate in my opinion. It's just my opinion. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, this whole post office scam, they'll blame it on the post office and uh, trying, and then later uh, kind of praising the post office and about how they have signed bad contracts with Amazon, um, how that's somehow related to COVID. Um, so what's, what's your sense of why is, the, why is one of the first things the president talking about is the post office scam? Uh 
as I said, it's my party and I'll rant if I want to. I mean, he, <laughs> he has it as an e day fix now that, uh, that, that mail-in ballots are bad for him. Uh, and he'll amend that, you know, in Florida you should because that's how he votes in Florida is by absentee ballot. And he's got this strange idea that absentee ballots are somehow different than mail-in votes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what he says in the same speech, yeah. But absentee uh, ballots in Florida are good. But every yeah. other mail-in balloting is bad. Mail-in ballots are bad, but absentee ballots are good. Really? That's, you know, like saying the... the the left, the left part of the of, of 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 the of the Twix bar is good, but the right part of the Twix bar is not. They're the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I think he's just got it in his head, uh, and and once something gets in his head, it's very hard to argue him out of it because he doesn't really care what you have to say or how much evidence you present. Um, you know, maybe it's a bit of psychological buffering that if in fact he does lose he'll be able to blame you know something else besides his own performance uh but I, I don't know it's hard i think the more important question is what's going on with the postal service right yep. uh, and and that i think is a really interesting public policy question because the postal service let's favorite you you know we're going to talk about technological change technological change has not been good to the postal service Right. Yep. That just the amount of mail being sent around is is, you know, falling off the cliff as we all email. Why? You know, and chat yeah. and and and, you know, text each other and, you know, everything else. We're not writing as many notes as we used to. Uh, we're not writing as many letters. So it seems to me that that this is real. I mean, how are you going to how are you going to do this? And the Postal Service, we know, is tied in to certain uh kinds of contracts, not the Amazon contract. Amazon is helping to keep the Postal Service afloat. I mean, everyone who's looked at this says so, right? They're not getting the sweetheart deals. Uh, that's, a, that's another one of the president's e-day feeks because he hates the Washington Post and he hates, thus he hates Jeff Bezos who owns the Washington Post, thus he hates Amazon. Uh, but uh, there, there's, you know, real issues here about how do you create a postal service that doesn't have enormous pension and health care liabilities, right? Uh, that, that, that continues to, to serve what it was created to serve, which frankly is under, uh, you know, uh, less densely populated and underserved areas. Look, if you just wanted the mail delivered in, in, in uh, urban and suburban areas, you'd have plenty of per-profit companies that would be more than happy to do that for you. You know, they're called FedEx and UPS, right? But, but it's, it's, it's interestingly enough, many of these places are the president's constituencies. They rely on the Postal Service because FedEx and UPS might not be delivering out there. Uh, but that's expensive. So maybe we have to go, we have to re-examine the idea that the Postal Service, you know, which was broken off as a, as a department of the federal government, used to be a cabinet office, right? broken off from the federal government into a, a, a corporation, right, in the 1970s was supposed to be self-sustaining. It was supposed to pay for itself. Well, maybe we have to rethink that and decide as a country, what do we want to pay to maintain a nationwide reliable postal service? So this guy DeJoy, one more thing. He's taking, he's taking these steps. 
maybe they're maybe they're necessary maybe they're rational for cutting costs he himself seems to have realized that it, he picked a really bad time to do it but you know the bigger questions i think are what's covid going to do to mail delivery and mail processing you know uh, covid has hit the postal service workers in urban areas very uh, very heavily uh, and that in and of itself is probably uh, 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 as big an issue in terms of being able to get mail delivered, mail processed, and 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 and, and mail picked up, as as the the issues of the sorting, the sorting machines and all, and 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 the overtime restrictions. He's got to. I mean, you got to do it with these overtime restrictions, and you might have to bring in temporary postal workers or bring postal workers from other parts of the country into urban areas. So you don't have these substantial delays that we're seeing in delivery in some in some parts of the country. So I think what I think is interesting about this is it seems really kind of bad timing on the postmaster general's uh, um, decision to cut costs and to cut scanning machines. Um, of course, I, you know, that those are also measures that you would use to cut costs. So it also fits in with, uh, if you're trying to, to cut costs kind of narrative. Um, it seems like though, it, this is one place where the system, the, the governance system seems to have kicked in and done its job though, right? Like there were questions and concerns about what was going on with the post office. This person was, uh, uh serving under an administration that maybe thinks that it would not be good for a lot of people to be able to mail in their ballots. So it's like a reasonable concern. Then things are at the same time kind of co-happening are issues with the mail being backed up, which go back, my understanding is that goes back to March. I mean, that's not new um, uh, ever since, to your point, ever since COVID was, uh, was hitting. Um, but it, it looks kind of bad, right? So then what does Congress do? Congress calls calls in the postmaster and it's like, hey, what's going on? T tell us about it. Let's see what the evidence is. They change some policy procedures, have a, has a, a actual policy response. Some things come to light. And here we are, and it seems like we haven't solved the problem, but at least what seems something we didn't know a lot about, we've uncovered the information and there's been actually a behavior change within the post office as a response. That's well, how you would hope the process would work to some degree. Well, there's been the promise of a behavior change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. We'll see. But you're right. I mean, this was this seems to be an example. If if they follow through with it, the Postal Service and, and, and the Postmaster General follow through with these promises of how public opinion and congressional oversight can, you know, walk the executive back from things that were uh, unpopular. Well, let's keep our moving. government, Justin, our government still works. It does still work. You institutionalists, I have to, I have to give credit where credit was due. It's we're still functioning. We're still pushing forward. So good for us. <laughs> good for federalism maybe, and balance of powers. <laughs> I, th I think maybe we're treading water more than pushing forward, but uh. that's true. At least we're not drowning completely. Right. Right. So, um, it's a shame faith isn't uh, in with us live this evening, and it's a shame that we're not uh, all together so we could give her a hard time. But we're going to talk about TikTok, which I knew mostly because of our students. Um, and 
Faith's a big fan of TikTok and um, it's kind of taken off. It's this huge app, but it hasn't been without uh, controversy. So we're going to use it to talk a little bit about uh, some of the tensions between U.S. and China as we have what a lot of commentators um, would suggest is sort of the beginnings of a Cold War between U.S. and China related to separating of the Internet. So one of, I said, to, uh, said this to you beforehand. One way I want to help the listeners think about this is think about this as an international affairs problem that we might have some corollaries from history to talk about. So before we do that, TikTok, for people who don't know, is a vid video sharing app. And it is so it has before it became um, um, uh, the recent issues around whether it can be banned or not banned and a potential sale to Microsoft. TikTok has been known to be kind of weak on their security measures. What does that mean? It means that even by industry norms, which let's be clear are egregious in my opinion, um, they share even more of your data and location and information than even Facebook and Google. Uh, in some cases. So they're, they're known to uh, collect and share your data and copious amounts of data. The other issue with TikTok is, um, oh, I'm going to uh, bl blank on the actual name of the company, but I think it's owned in part by Tencent. Um, and it's a Chinese company. It's owned uh, by a Chinese company. And uh, the Chinese uh, communist government has a lot more ability to um, force companies to share their users' data with them. We can talk about whether that's actually something the U.S. government, uh, US government does as well or not, if this is really that, if we're holding a double standard or not. But that's the concern is that China would have access to not just a lot of personal users' data, but a lot of Americans' uh, data, and that this would be a national security issue. To highlight, this is sort of a subset of an issue, a set of issues that I look at, which is how algorithms and data are being used, uh, both by large companies and by national governments, and what types of regulation we might need um, in place. So, you have TikTok, Greg? Uh, no. <laughs> good, good. So, I want Justin. Uh, I, I don't even have a Twitter account. <laughs> We do need to get you on Twitter. We can have some, I think, some fun conversations on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But maybe not. <laughs> it is pretty ugly there, too. Um, it's pretty ugly there like it is on Facebook. Yeah. So I think one way to think about this is that we talk about this being a new Cold War, is to think about the actual original Cold War. And in the uh, aftermath of World War II, we have the Cold War. Part of that is because we have two large hegemonic powers left after World War II that aren't seeing things eye to eye. Part of this is this new weaponry that we have, which is nuclear weaponry that can blow up at the world essentially by the time they're done testing, but definitely complete urban areas. Um, and we, in the aftermath of that, we had this kind of long running tension with the Soviet Union. We tried to remake kind of the post-World War II order all in kind of the backdrop of these impressive technological tools. So in a condensed version, what are some lessons that you know from history and international affairs that seem that seem relevant that we that we should have learned from that time period? 
So I think we got to think about this in terms of states and non-state actors, right? Because the mm -hmm. internet is, is to some extent governed by states, but also to some extent governed by non-state actors. Uh, and we, we'll have to get Jesse Sowell, our colleague on, uh, who, who does work on kind of the, the, the private management of the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, later, later on, get them on the pod. But I, I think that, you know, you're, you kind of be, you're moving toward this idea that how do you, how do states negotiate to limit conflict on the internet, right? Like cyber, like cyber conflict. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, are there, uh, uh, I got faith, to, faith yeah. just faith just <laughs> sent us a a uh, a text with the hashtag save TikTok. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Faith. Uh, faith for those for those who might just be tuning in. Faith Dingus is our producer. Uh, she's a TikTok fan. As, a TikTok uh... fan. So <laughs> so you had you had arms control. You had the non-proliferation treaty uh, that limited the the countries who could. Uh, "Quote unquote," legitimately under international law, obtain nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, a number of countries uh, didn't sign that and flouted it, right? Uh, and 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 uh, went nuclear. Some countries that that signed uh, basically went nuclear. Some countries like Israel didn't sign. India, Pakistan obtained. Some countries obtained and and disarmed. Like South Africa was very close. I don't know. I don't know if people think that they actually obtained a weapon, but they were certainly very close to a, we a weapon. And after the collapse of the apartheid government, they disarmed uh, a number of the post-Soviet republics uh, that that emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. Ukraine, Kazakhstan, they disarmed. It's part of a, a U.S.-Russia deal with them for aid and all that kind of thing uh, back back in the 90s after after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think, you know, there are, there are other examples of state-based treaties that limited the use of certain kinds of weapons. Probably the most famous is the Chemical Weapons Convention, right? That came out of World War I, where chemical weapons were used uh, extensively by both sides, right? By both the Axis, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Allied powers and the, uh, well, let's not confuse World War II and World War I. <laughs> yeah, both, I wasn't going to be able to help you out, actually. <laughs> both, by, both by the Entente powers and the Triple Alliance powers. There you go. Check that on Wikipedia if you don't know <laughs> World War I. Uh, and mostly on the Western Front. So it was the French and the Brits using the gas and the Germans using the gas, right? And then there, there in the in the 20s, there was negotiated a Geneva Convention which banned the use of poison gas in, 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 for warfare. And, and amazingly, in World War II, where atomic bombs were used, where the bombing of cities was 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 a regular tactic of war, where the United States firebombed Tokyo, knowing that that large parts of the residential areas of that city were built out of wooden paper. I mean. World War II was not a war of restraint, and yet nobody used chemical weapons. Yeah. And the use of chemical weapons has been very, very limited. You know, you've got the Syrians dropping chlorine bombs from helicopters on on rebel-held areas, but you haven't seen you 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 saw Iraq use chemical weapons against Iran, 
in the 1980 to 88 Iran-Iraq war, but there's not that many examples of the use of chemical weapons. Right? The United States was afraid that Iraq would use chemical weapons in 1990 and in 2003, didn't happen. So the chemical weapons ban has been very robust. And is it based on a normative, a growth of a norm that this is just absolutely outside the pale? Is it based on self-interest? If we use chemical weapons, they'll use chemical weapons on us. I don't know. And can cyber get to that point? Is, is cyber going to get to a point of deterrence like nuclear weapons? Or is it going to get to a point of a normative agreement among states and non-state actors that certain uses of cyber capabilities are just beyond the pale? Or are we going to see, uh, you know, hacking of electrical grids and, 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 and Stuxnet style efforts to, to to use cyber weapons to disarm uh, opponents' uh, weapon systems or the development of their weapon systems? I don't know. But I, 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 I kind of think, knowing very little about this field, that private actors seem to be a lot more important in this field than they were in these weapons treaties and, and the development of norms around weapons. Yeah, I think that's right. So. Um... There's a couple ways where a couple ways to think about how cyber warfare is different, and so it might develop some different types of norms, right? So one clear example, I think, compared to the types of responses we would need to say um, a nuclear bomb, right, is access to a lot of these uh, smart tools, AIs, those types of things. You don't need all the specialized uranium, all the specialized ingredients. You don't need a big fancy lab. You just need computing power and clever code. And anyone that's clever enough um, with the infrastructure that we have now can can exploit it in ways that is uh, that's dangerous and that's expensive. Um, the tactics in general, I think, have been different, right? So they're less um, they're less obvious because it's in such a technical, and, and there's a lot of strategies to kind of be covert about how this plays out. Um, more, more deniability. More deniability because it's harder to track and trace and prove. And you can see a bomb explode and you can see people wearing uniforms invading some country. It's much harder to see where uh, some, some type of cyber attack comes from. Um, so in, th in that way, I think it's, it's different. It'll have some different norms. So to your point, individual private actors can be more disruptive uh, than, say, individual actors have been able to be on the world stage, with maybe some exceptions of small organized terrorist groups that have seemed to do a lot of damage with limited resources and um, small cell units. A absolutely. I mean, 9-11 is the obvious example, mm -hmm. although we know that al-Qaeda made a, a, an effort to get nuclear technology for a dirty bomb and, and they failed. So the, the barriers to entry on the uh, nuclear weapons side are a lot, a lot greater than on the cyber side. We know Om Shinrikyo, the terrorist group in Japan did release uh, a chemical attack in the Tokyo subway. So the barriers to entry there are, are, are a little lower. But I'd say the barriers to, I think you're right, the barriers to entry on cyber are just, you know, some smart, some smart programmers, some smart coders. 
Yeah. And um, what else about this should we highlight? The other thing, so I want to get to people may not, it may not be clear to people why we're jumping from TikTok to cyber warfare. So maybe we should, we should draw that link for them. But before we go there, the other, the other kind of treaty or attempts at international agreement from a normative standpoint has been against autonomous killing weapons. So in this space of advanced technologies and machine learning and smart bombs, there are some efforts kind of normatively and internationally to encourage countries to not use these types of weapons. Um, but why are we talking about TikTok as a weapon? <laughs> so this may be unclear to people. Aside from actual um, violence of force, what is, TikTok, what, what is TikTok actually used for to cause tension between China and the US? Well, it collects a lot of data about its users, right? So the concern is TikTok is where you share videos, short videos of yourself or your surroundings on the app, is that anyone that has sharing this data, can their location can be tracked. Different times of day, their behaviors can be tracked. And so it's more of a um, intelligence tool that could be uh, utilized by an adversary rather than a direct kind of attacking weapon. And so the, 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 the issue there is one that's actually not just between the U.S. and China and TikTok. It's the whole regulatory infrastructure, which is what I want to talk a little bit about it as well. This is uh, what we call surveillance, right? It's the... The, the argument is that the Chinese government through the private company of TikTok can surveil U.S. citizens and also U.S. citizens of particular interest. But this is a hard one, I think, for people to um, get their heads around because this plays out in so much of our normal life already. It's playing out with how we interact with large corporations like Facebook and Google. And it's also not just China surveilling us right? And our behaviors on our phones. Um, we know that the U.S. government does this to its own citizens as well. Um, so um, what are some of your thoughts on how all of this is kind of disruptive and what it means for the relationship between U.S. and China in particular? You know, I'm trying to do a thought experiment. Would, would we be concerned about TikTok if China were not a uh, seen as a growing conventional threat, right? Rising, rising economy, rising military power, throwing its weight around in East Asia, right? If, if TikTok were based in Singapore, and you know, Singapore is a fascinating place, but it's never gonna be a world power because it's too small, right? Would, would we care as much about TikTok if it were a Singaporean company? And my guess is no. So it kind of plays into more conventional notions of power relations that it, it's, it's not so much that TikTok gets a lot of information about American consumers and thus can sell them products that they want. We're fine with that. That's, you know, we, that's what everybody <laughs> that's does. Yeah. That's, you talk about making America great again. That's what, that, that's what America's about, finding out what you want and selling it to you. Uh, but I think there's this notion that, 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 that somehow that information can then be leveraged if the Chinese wish to, wish to do us dirt, yeah. right? Uh, it could help them hack into government systems, right? The way they hacked into uh, 
the the uh, the GPO, the Government Personnel Office, right? You know, the Chinese actors hacked into that and 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 exposed a lot of personal data with people who, who work in the government. So it it seems to me that it's less it's less about the the specifics of TikTok and more about the context of just a rising suspicion, bipartisan, right? This this isn't just President Trump of of China and China's intentions. And so, you know, most I think most international relations scholars would say, well, of course. I mean, whenever you get a developing bipolar system, the two the two big players are going to uh, look upon each other as potential threats and be antagonistic. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly that's exactly right. And so what I what I was wondering and what I've as you know, I've been studying a lot of AI policy, which is the same the same idea of um, how are these new tools influencing US strategy in its relationship to the world. And I do, I was wanted to get your thoughts on this because I do think you're right in that if it was Singapore, we wouldn't care. Um, I do think maybe we we're having a separate conversation from the civil regulatory side about whether we should care, um, which is some of the conversation I'm participating in. And I say we should care because things are being, um, uh, so much data is being collected about us and in a kind of a subversive kind of way that's not out in the open. I think that's its own problem. But by making China the specific boogeyman, the specific kind of uh, enemy, it seems like we're losing an opportunity to help shape how these tools are used in kind of a in kind of a useful way together, rather than focusing on the conflict. You know, one of the thoughts I've had about this is, is instead of this conversation being explicitly about China as the enemy. Part of it should be how can we build other collaborations with other countries to put pressure on China to join the rest of the world's internet? Because right. what is true about this is they ban U.S. companies from uh, uh, from uh, being used in China. So there's you know there's certainly uh, a precedent there from from their side not being welcoming to American companies, and it seems like we're just instigating that and playing into it by making them kind of the the boogeyman, the enemy in this situation. By making it a bilateral fight, I think you're right. Uh, the theory of engagement with China across Republican and Democratic administrations since the 1970s was you make China a responsible stakeholder, right? You bring them into the WTO. You bring them into international institutions. Well, uh, there, there seems to be something of a consensus that that hasn't worked that well. But I, I still don't, I, I, I wouldn't give up on it yet, right? I mean, to the extent that the Trump administration distrusts international institutions, you can't use those international institutions to try to get the Chinese to be more responsible players, right? To me, you, you, the better way to, 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 to go after the Chinese on trade issues is to stick with the WTO, get the EU, get the South Koreans, get the Japanese, get, the, get everybody else to come to the, to, to the Chinese and say, look, you can't play this way. You can't play this way on internet, on intellectual property. You can't play this way on other elements of trade disputes. You want to play? Here's the rules. And if you if you bring that to China as like everybody, as opposed to, you know, the U.S. is going to confront China directly and wave our finger at them and threaten them and all, you might get a better result. But uh, there 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 is certainly a decreasing confidence across the foreign policy community 
Republican and Democratic uh, officials and experts that the theory of the case from the 70s, that China becomes a responsible stakeholder by bringing them into these institutions, people are starting to question that more and more. Yeah, that's one of the things I um, was interested to get your get specifically your thoughts on as to how this kind of shapes out in the uh, international affairs literature because it seems from like a, from like a scientific advancement standpoint, it seems pretty clear to me that we should just try to engage <laughs> rather than threaten and engage with a building coalition of actors who normatively agree. And uh, so uh, it's frustrating to see it play out in this antag unnecessarily antagonistic way, I think. So I think just, just before we get on to the last, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll make that short because we talked a little about it at the top. You raised the issue of privacy in a domestic regulatory element. And, you know, down the line, we'll talk about this more, but I, I just think privacy means something so different these days than it, than it did in the past. I mean, I, yeah, it does. I, um, and we should set some time maybe in a few weeks to talk more about it. It's, it's more about um, evade, it's as much about privacy specifically is it, as it is about transparency and democratic accountability towards what you're doing. Um, because every, I think everyone's in a sort of general acceptance that, yeah, companies that I interact with are going to capture some of my data. The government needs some of my data. I think people get that intuitively. Um, they clearly get it by their behavior from posting things on, on social media. But I think everyone expected like a sense of kind of goodwill contracts from that, that it turns out the way in which the data is used kind of strikes a lot of people as like unfair and not what they were expecting and kind of taking advantage of them. And, you know, they, they signed the contract, right? We all click, I agree. But it also needs to be something that we can reasonably agree to and that gives us reasonably an opportunity to opt out of and have kind of free kind of, uh, not bargaining rights, but ways of kind of picking apart different pieces of the contract and still having access to what is essentially a news platform or you know a platform that is, it's not just a place where people go and post their individual things. It's a, it's a infrastructure, just like our news channels and just like um, other sources of information. So you're right that it is, a, it's different. And I think when privacy comes up in these conversations, people are like, yeah, but everyone's just giving their data away. And that's part of it. But the bigger piece of it, I think, is then what do they get to do with it? It's not whether they can collect it for basic services, you know, uh, for the product you signed up for within limited domains. It's, it's, when a company scrapes against Facebook's policies, all the photos on Facebook, and then sells that to police departments with a bunch of innocent people's photos for people to be misidentified in a way that was done in a misleading without any accountability. Yeah. That's sort of some of the things that are like, that just can't be, that can't be the, what society really wants as the optimal outcome. So, um, <laughs> but I could go on that all day as, you, as you're gonna quickly learn. Um, one thing I wanted to check in uh, back in with you um, is on how things are doing in College Station. Uh, since we talked last, a number of higher ed uh, and K through 12 institutions 
have opened and a lot of them have been able to remain uh, open and having people on campus. A lot of them have had to change course because of uh, COVID-19 outbreaks. Um, there's a lot of pressure both from faculty and external stakeholders for universities to share this data. There's been some concern, um, <clears throat> particularly in a number of SEC schools about um, how regularly are they gonna share the data? Um, how systematic of testing do they have set up? One of my good friends is uh, David Bradford. Him and some of his colleagues at UGA wrote an open letter in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, pleading with the Board of Regents to provide more regular testing and uh, uh, meeting kind of the basic requirements to make sure they knew how, uh, how what the spread of COVID was on campus. I've been critical of our approaches, as you know, um, but we are putting in some testing regimes. We have brought students back to campus. What's your sense of uh, kind of the latest with the back to school challenges related to the pandemic? <clears throat> Not good. Not good. We, uh, uh, Texas A&M posted uh, just about an hour ago, a COVID dashboard. And it shows that in the week that began August 16th, the positivity rate of our cases was almost 17% on campus. Uh, that was about 1,700 cases, I think. Don't don't quote me on that. Go to go to the go to the dashboard. Everybody who's a Tamu affiliate got that email. You can uh, you can link to it. Uh, that's not great. 17% is not great. Higher that it's higher than the county rate. Which was about eleven and a half percent last time I looked. So, uh, and you know, there's anecdotal evidence of the kind of behavior that you would expect from uh, young adults who haven't seen each other for a long time when they get back together on campus. The normal kind of behavior that you know we're, they're supposed to refrain from now, but sometimes they don't. So I I, I can't see that uh, how to avoid an uptick in cases. Then the question is for the university administration. I mean, at what point do you say, this is too much, these are too many. Uh, we don't have any clear uh, metrics from the university leadership at Texas A&M as to just what metrics, what, 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 what the threshold points are gonna be for moving us from this hybrid model of, of course delivery where we have some courses completely remote right, on Zoom, some courses asynchronously online, and some courses taught face-to-face, -face, but with a remote element. So you've got students in the classroom, but you also got the camera that's zooming you out to the students who, for whatever reason, can't be there. Uh, when do we just go back to all remote? Uh, it's unclear how that decision is going to be made. But I got I to gotta, I gotta imagine that if the positivity rate of tests you know, continues to be high double digits or higher and more and more tests are done and we see more and more cases, more and more actual cases, uh, it's gonna be hard to sustain this. North Carolina couldn't, Notre Dame has gone on, on shutdown of classes, of in-person classes for a couple of weeks. Michigan State has gone to all remote. It's gonna be very hard. And we know many, many universities where where overall case rates are, are are declining and are lower than here started the the semester all online 
Washington, D.C. Right. So um, I pulled up the dashboard because, you know, we're on our computers and quick, quick. Uh, Google is very efficient in their search engine. So I uh, have the website. Yeah, for but, you, but you have now given Google some more data. about. <laughs> I have. I have. There's, no, there's no escaping it, which is going to be part of the conversation we're going to have. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, tamu.edu slash coronavirus slash dashboard. A couple things to note as I have it pulled up in front of me. It looks like the positivity rate for the week of August 16 was the final one as it's been updated is just shy of 17%, having the positivity rate since August 2nd through now being uh, 13%. It's a total of uh, 407 positive tests that have been uh, reported to the university. The piece that you would see that looks disconcerting is if you look at, there's a graph of daily new cases going August 11th through August 22nd. Um, August 17th, 18th, and 19th, it was around 16 to 22. By August 20th, it was 51. August 21st and 22nd, there's over 100 cases each new day. Yep. Um, so um, that's where that's where that is. There's definitely been a jump in daily new cases, and the positivity rate um, remains remains high. Um, so those of you in Aggie Land, uh, stay safe. Um, and uh, when you can wear your wear your damn mask, <laughs> wear your damn masks and take your classes on Zoom when you can and stay home and help protect our faculty members. Thank I you. think that's all. I think that's all we have this week. We're over our hour uh, limit. And um, but it's good to talk through it all with you, Greg. It's always a pleasure. And um, next week we'll have Raymond join us to balance That'll us off fun. a little bit. And uh, Raymond's That'll, always a treat. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, thank you everyone for um, taking the time and hanging out with us on YouTube this evening, and we'll do better starting uh, two weeks from now, making sure we incorporate some questions, really drop the ball as we've gotten this new format set up, but uh, we promise to start doing a better job of integrating your questions, particularly once we have our guests back. We'll blame Faith for that. <laughs> Let's blame Faith. Uh, that's what she gets for being a fan of TikTok. <laughs> All right, Greg, good to see you. Thanks so much. Nice see you, seeing you Justin. Bye-bye.